I'm going to do just a short introduction because I, I don't have a mic, but uh, the board is really excited to invite Ben and Don back. Both of them at separate times have attended our symposium. So um, Ben is an associate professor of, associate professor and food safety extension specialist at North Carolina State University. And Don is the, the Extension Specialist in Food Science and Distinguished Professor at Rutgers University, and they both co-host the, the I cannot talk without a microphone. <laughs> co-host the Food Safety Talk podcast. So welcome. Perfect. Thank you um, so much. This so it's always hard to get started on these things. So so just as a little bit of an introduction. So we're recording this as part of um, the Food Safety Talk podcast catalog, I guess. Um, and uh, Don and I do this every couple of weeks um, where we'll, we talk to each other, not in the same room. So he's in New Jersey and I'm in North Carolina. And, and we, we just sort of talk about food safety things that, that we're interested in. And how we usually get started, if you've listened to the podcast, is we basically talk about what we're watching on Netflix as like a warm-up and sometimes that's like 45 minutes worth <laughs> worth, of, worth of content um and so uh i just i just want to say um we're we're going to be more focused today yeah yeah well that's that's the thing is like it's always when we do this live um i don't think you really care about what we're i mean i'm not that the listeners really care what we're what we're watching on netflix but i don't think you brought us here to talk about like letter kenny i i do have to say though um if you're not watching letter kenny yeah. you should be and and um ben is going to see letter kenny live in north carolina in march I am going to see Letterkenny live also um, uh, in March in New Jersey, and I've invited Ben to come with and, and attend the Letterkenny New Jersey performance with me. Now, now of course, that is not a reimbursable expense, now, um, but I can also invite him to come to New Jersey and give a talk nominally about food safety, um, uh, and, then, and then also invite him to come uh, here to Letterkenny Live. So if, if yeah. none of this makes any sense to you, um, don't worry. Don't worry, uh, sorry, yeah. You'll figure it out. This is just how, so, we, how we have to start. So we should, we should start with a survey. We should, we so, are, yeah. So we've, we've, we've been talking for a few minutes about this thing called a podcast, okay? Um, so what I, what we're, now this is the audience participation part, right? So how many of you have ever heard of a thing called a podcast? Raise your hand. All right, okay, good. so let the record show that almost everybody has raised their hands. Yep. Um, how many of you have ever listened to at least a little bit of a podcast? Wow, and again, um, most every hand goes up. That's fantastic. So how many of you would consider yourselves regular podcast listeners? And we got maybe a third of the audience. Okay, now, the most important question how many of you listen to our podcast? Oh, yes, wow. Yes. This, is, this is an all-time very, record. I think yeah. we've got seven people, eight people. We're very popular, uh, this, we're very popular in, in Idaho. <laughs> yeah, very big in Idaho. Very big in Idaho. Yeah. Excellent. So, so thank you for that. So, um, so as I've explained to several of you already, um, podcasting is an audio medium. So essentially, you are watching two guys do a radio show. Um, this is what you get. Um, we are we are dressed for radio. Um, we're we're, yes. uh, we're wearing we're wearing t-shirts. Um, you want to talk about your t-shirt? Sure. Card? Mine is um, it, it says Gunga Lagunga, which is my uh, one of my adult rec hockey teams. 
Um, and it, uh, we've talked on the podcast quite a bit about this hockey team uh, over over the years. So whenever we do a live podcast, I wear this T-shirt uh, now. So now anybody who is not a regular listener of the podcast, do you know what Gungalagunga means? Anybody? All right, that's your homework. Um, so, uh, and, and don't worry, Google um, it now. you can Google yeah. it now yeah. or, uh, one of, so one of the things that we do, so my job on the podcast is to talk, but also to, to keep track of links for, sh- for show notes. And so when this comes out as an episode, we will have a link to, uh, what, uh, Gungala Gunga beats. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, on the other hand, I'm wearing a t-shirt that is a t-shirt from another podcast, which is a bit, apparently a big thing that you do when you're on a podcast is you, you promote other podcasts that are not yours. So uh, if you're interested in another podcast that features uh, two middle-aged white guys talking to each other, um, Roderick on the line, uh, highly recommended. Yeah, uh, I, I'm not, I would not say that I'm middle-aged. Middle-aged, yeah. yeah. So, sorry. Right. Um, <laughs> but, well, and, but, and we're, we're going to talk, okay. we're gonna, we are eventually, this is a nice, this, we can, this is a nice segue. Um, so we're going to segue into 50 years of food safety, okay? Yep. So, We're both food yep. safety microbiologists. Um, 50 years ago was uh, 1969. Um, I was eight years old. Ben... I was not eight years old. <laughs> I, I was, ne- I was neg- negative nine years old. Oh, yeah. that's a nice symmetry. Yeah, yeah. So we've remarked before, um, Ben and I grew up equidistant from the Canadian border. Um, ben on the Canadian <laughs> side. Um, me on the U.S. Yeah. side, uh, and we're also yeah. equidistant from 1989. Yeah, yeah. Or 19, yes. The, the, or 19, 19, yeah. Uh, what did I say? Uh, immor- uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. 1969. 69. Immortalized in the great Brian Adams song, The Summer of 69. That's our Canadian content okay. right now. There you go. Brian <laughs> Adams. So we're, we're leaving. So we're, I think we're good. We're, yeah, we're, so, um, so what, one of the things that we, we do on the podcast, um, is we, we really, we sort of try to track what's going on in the world of food safety that, that is of interest to us. And it's not always food safety, it's food trends. And actually, um, Gary, who spoke before, I'm not sure if he's, if he's still here, um, uh, he was talking about sort of new trends in foods and gave a term of ghost restaurants that I had never heard of before. And so that's the kind of thing where it's like, oh, we're, we're, we're somewhere, we're at a meeting, we're talking with people. And immediately I Googled ghost restaurants and found a couple of articles and then popped them into what we're going to talk about on a podcast at some, some future point. But it's, it's really interesting for, for us because we come at... Um, we come at food safety from different perspectives. And, and so um, my, my background is really in what do people do and how do, you, how do you manage food safety around people and communication and habits and practices? Um, you know, where, do, where do things fall apart um, in, in food safety, but like really, really focused on, on individuals and not what they say they do, but what they, what they actually do. And then Don comes at it from a a different perspective. Right. So, and, and actually, and w- it's going to be really exciting to get into this uh, 50 years of food safety because there's a lot of uh, what I would say in the literature from 1969, a lot of dramatic foreshadowing of, of the work that, that I'm doing today and actually some of the work yep. maybe that Ben is doing. Um, so, so, so I have a more, um, I would say, mathematical statistical approach to food safety. So what we do in my lab is we build models, predictive models for the growth of microorganisms in food, and we do quantitative microbial risk assessment. And so these these are tools that are very useful because sometimes you don't have actual 
uh, uh, data or you don't have actual experiments, but you still need to make decisions, right? You need to make decisions about whether, uh, how to handle a particular food or how, how an industry uh, can, can deal with a particular uh, risk. Uh, one, one that uh, has been on my mind recently because of some work that we've been doing uh, for the, the flower industry is risk of foodborne pathogens um, from flour. And I was really interested to see that back in 1969, there were a number of papers where people were looking at uh, foodborne pathogens in, in flour, which you know, I think of, I think maybe we all think of, as being a relatively recent uh, issue because of recalls and, and outbreaks in the news. But yet, still, 50 years ago, people were thinking about that. Right, right, right. Yeah, and so, so what Don and I kind of did is we, we, we did spend some time going back and looking at what was in what was being talked about. And there, you know, we, we kind of, over dinner last night, kind of reminisced about like people's names um, who, who we collectively know, you know, 50 years later, who some have, have you know, passed away and, and some are still around, but where they are, what they were talking about 50 years ago, and this will sound terrible if they're actually listening, it's kind of the same thing that they're talking about today. Um, you know, but in, in a much more broader sense, and I'll give an example um, of this. One of the, one of the papers that, that we found in this sort of deep dive in, into history was uh, about food safety in retail, um, and which is an area that I, I focus in, retail, food service, people, and, and it was by, um, uh, an individual who is well known um, in in the world of, of food safety, uh, Gail Prince, and and he wrote this really interesting article, uh, basically highlighting you know things, and I'll, I'll read some some stuff here that that is you know is essentially the same as what we're talking about um, today. You know things about uh, trying to search for. Uh, compounds that are useful in cleaning and sanitizing retail stores. And it's like, I mean, we're we're still we're still trying to grapple with that um, now. Quality control programs and sampling uh, at retail using bacteriological and chemical analysis. Um, and and so this is you. Know, I, I don't. I didn't really. I don't really have a, um, a a good perspective on this. I mean, I came into food safety in about like 1998. 1999 is when this really like came into you know in, into my personal sphere, and then I had some you know history of going back a little bit before but before that, but to, to, you know thinking about going to look in in the literature of what happened 50 years ago and being like, oh, these are we're still tackling we haven't we're we're still trying to tackle the same types of problems in a much more developed way. Um, it's really it was really interesting to to go back and do that. Yeah. So, and you know, like uh, like I said, I'm middle aged. Ben says he's not middle aged. Right. Um, Gail Prince was old when I was starting. Um, he's, still old, <laughs> he's still old, but he looks yeah. the same. So, yeah. uh, uh, if if you've not had the pleasure of uh, meeting Gail, he's he's an amazing and uh, with an a guy with an encyclopedic knowledge of, of food safety. And now now retired, uh, but still seems to travel the world uh, doing consulting food time full time. But uh, nevertheless, he wrote an article back in 1969 called "Sanitation in the Retail Food Industry." Um, back when he worked for. Eisner Food Stores um, uh, in Champaign, Illinois. So, so cool stuff. Um, you know, uh, taking this walk through memory lane was was really interesting for me. So, I came across an article. So, what we did uh, in preparation for this is we looked at um, uh, the Journal of Food Protection, which is a journal that we we both uh, publish in. We also looked in the Journal of Food Science, and, and I tried to look in food technology. Um, food technology, unfortunately, the, the digital archives only go back to 1999, and so it was. I could find some things, but I couldn't really. I could only find the titles. But I do. I do have a comment on on food technology that I want to read in a minute. But but one article that really took me back um, was an article that appeared um, 
in July of 1969, and it's entitled Degradation of DDT and DDE by Cheese Microorganisms. Now, this has nothing to do with what's going on in terms of food safety today, but what really, what this, it was so delightful to find this article uh, because the first author is a professor uh, at Cornell University by the name of uh, Richard or, or Dick Ledford. And I remember falling in love with food microbiology when I took Dick Ledford's food micro class. And so here it is 50 years ago, the guy that kind of inspired me to become a food safety microbiologist, or at least a food microbiologist, um, uh, published a paper on um, getting rid of pesticides by cheese microorganisms. So that, to me, like I said, th this was a really a fascinating walk through, through memory lane, and this was just one example. Yeah. Um, another one that um, that I really liked from uh, uh, Journal of Food Science was um, about, the title is Effective Processing on Recovery of Polio Virus from Inoculated Foods. And, and so 50 years ago, again, this is something that, um, uh, you know, we don't, I guess we don't often think about. It's like obviously the pathogens that we're, we're concerned about today are, are somewhat different than 50 years ago, but I never really thought about um, polio virus being transmitted through food being a, a risk that was enough for um, individuals to investigate, like, well, what kind of foods can it, can it survive in? Obviously, it's not a primary uh, transfer me you know, method for, for that virus. But the, the, the data that, that was presented, which was really, really interesting um, stuff, basically said, um, over time, different types of foods, the polio virus will survive unless you have a, a food, really highly uh, acidic food, below pH 2.9. And <laughs> so, so that, like, and, and so it's like, well, what, at, at that time, and I don't, you know, I don't know the, um, the situation here, but it's like, okay, so, so basically we, we, we know that if, if uh, polio virus was a real foodborne illness risk, um, through consumption or handling of food, it's pretty much all foods that we would have to worry about. That's the sort of sort of takeaway. And then, you know, obviously, 50 years later, we're not talking about poliovirus hardly at all in any um, in any realm. But it was just interesting to be like, oh, this is in you know a Journal of Food Science. This is you know an interesting kind of um, um, investigation. So, so here's another uh, Journal of Food Science. And again, for me, this really became all about about. Uh, connections and, and thinking back about the past. So this is an article entitled Heat of Respiration of Fresh Produce as Affected by Controlled Atmosphere. Now it's not about food safety, but I'm doing a lot of work about food, on food safety today and looking at um, relative humidity and looking at temperature and the importance of that. But what, what really was delightful for me was the first author of this paper. This first author of this paper is a guy by the name of Romeo Toledo. This it turns out, this, and it was done at the University of Illinois, this was part of his PhD research at University of Illinois. Well, when I went to graduate school at the University of Georgia, he was my PhD advisor, right? And so here you have a guy who's getting his PhD, who's studying respiration of fresh produce, who years later will have a graduate student who gets a PhD, who's who, not anything to do with fresh produce, right? He didn't do any work on fresh produce in the intervening years, as far as I know. Um, I wasn't doing fresh produce research at the time, and yet now, flash forward to 50 years from this, when this first paper came out, we're doing research not on respiration of fresh produce, but looking at the same factors, looking at relative humidity, uh, looking at temperature and looking at fresh produce from a food safety perspective. So again, just was and I totally just stumbled across it, and it, it warmed my heart. You know. Yeah, it's uh, th there's some pretty cool, pretty cool stuff. 
um, out there. One that was a little bit later, uh, not 1969, so you know, I'll, I'll break away from, uh, from protocol for um, you know, the, the goal of, of today's meeting. Um, but uh, we, there's a name that, um, that kept coming up in, in, a lot of in a lot of papers, and it's a guy by the name of uh, Frank Bryan. And uh, the work that I do now at NC State is largely focused on observing food safety behaviors. And, and um, Frank, one, one of the papers, one, Frank um, investigated uh, an outbreak uh, of Clostridium perfringens that was linked to uh, high, school, um, uh, high school service of a Thanksgiving meal. And uh, when I was looking sort of through the history of the work that I do and where did this start, someone, someone asked me one time, like, well, who did the first observation study? Um, so trying to go through all this literature, and it's like, you know, I, I, we started doing it from a systematic research uh, sometime in the mid-90s, but I, I found this paper that, that Frank wrote in, in 1971 where he took this outbreak and instead of trying to figure out, asking people what they did, let's go look at temperatures, they just said, okay, recreate exactly what you did to make all of these kids sick. Don't serve the food again, <laughs> but recreate this. Where did you buy the turkeys? Where did you store them? How did you cook them? And, and so the paper really details different wings of this high school where some turkeys were cooked in home ec classes and some were cooked in the cafeteria. And then they were cooked early in the morning because they had to sort of get out of the way of the breakfast rush in the cafeteria. And then they were stored um, at ambient temperature. And all through this process, Frank and his team was, was there taking microbial samples of what was happening, and then documenting the practices, and that, that's what the, the result of the paper is, recreating this, this outbreak. And, and that's um, it, you know, the first time that I, or, uh, the most, the eldest uh, piece of literature that I could find in this, but also really what we do today. I mean, just structured in, in a very similar, um, similar process. So, so it's, you know, this trip down memory lane of where, where are we, um, it, it is kind of it's kind of interesting because a lot of the things that we're doing are, are similar and we've just we've just built on them. Um, it, we we also looked a little bit at um, some other documents uh, that were out there and one that I want to highlight and I don't know where Don found this but it's uh, from the precursor to CDC the National Communicable Disease Center and it's their annual summary 1969. Uh, on foodborne outbreaks. And it's this like photocopied, mimeographed uh, version of this uh, you know, typewritten um, report. And what was really interesting, so you know, if we look at our foodborne illness outbreaks now, um, pretty, pretty consistently over the last 15 or, or 20 years, we would see norovirus, salmonella, um, and perfringens uh, at the top, and campylobacter. Uh, if we were looking at illnesses. And back in 1969, um, the majority of outbreaks that were reported and investigated, and it was very, very small, this was only about 400 outbreaks a year, um, the number one source was uh, staph, staph aureus. So 25.3% of the outbreaks that were investigated um, were, were staph. And then coming in uh, next, was perfringens, and then third was salmonella, um, and then and then you. What's really interesting for me when I was looking at this uh, at this document, um, the unknown etiology. We're still where we are today. If we look at sort of epidemiology of what makes people sick, um, 
you know, we're, we're pretty good at guessing about half of it, and then half is like, we just don't know. And back in 1969, the unknown was a little smaller. Um, it was 21.6%. Uh, um, but, the, you know, things that aren't on this list, and this is, this is the part that I took away. So there's no pathogenic E. coli in 1969. Let me, let me characterize that a little differently because the phrasing is wrong on that. Pathogenic E. coli existed in 1969, but we didn't know about it. We weren't looking for it. It was in this probably unknown. There's viral, uh, which makes up 2.5%, but we don't, we're not talking about norovirus um, at all. There's no Campylobacter on this list. Um, and, and so it's, it, you know, just fast forward over, over 50 years, there's no listeria monocytogenes on here. Fast forward 50 years, and the, the very things, and, you know, hearing everybody talk about um, food safety last night and, and tonight, or in, and today, um, you know, listeria is, is a, a, you know, a major concern in food uh, processing, and 50 years ago, it's just not even something that we were, like, it wasn't even there. I mean... It was there. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, it's no, there, no, but I know what you mean. We just yeah. didn't know about it. We just it. Right. don't know right. about well, it. Right. Well, and then it makes you think, like, what, what are we... And again, even, even if you go... And so the, 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 the title is 50 Years of Food Safety. So 19, 1971, is, it's legit. It's within it's the 50 within years. It's within the 50 years, no, yeah. 1968, you know, now you're, now you're outside the ballpark, point. right? Good so we can, we can look at the whole... We can look oh, at yeah. Because the whole, the whole there was an, an yeah. Intermountain IFT meeting in 1971. <laughs> Maybe Frank Bryan was here. <laughs> but but how I found this article, this this wonderful photographed uh, CDC article, or or it's it was it's on the CDC website. And so what I did in preparation, because you know Ben and I had had this conversation, was say, well, okay, so we know, we know uh, from the most recent CDC data, it's a it's a couple papers by Scallon et al. Uh, nineteen uh, nineteen uh, two thousand and eleven, and we'll 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 link to at least one of them in the in the show notes. Um, I said, well. You know, CDC's been tracking this stuff for a while. Um, let's go back. Let's go f as far back as we can find on the CDC website. And at some point, this, it's not, there's not CDC documentation there, but the, 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 this, this article is available on the CDC website, and so you can find it. And, and I was struck by the same things that you were, and, and, you ex and I, I kind of expected some of this. Like, yeah. okay, yeah, for sure, we expect Staphylococcus to be really big, right? And it is. It's 25%. We expect perfringence to be really big. It's 17% it's, uh, of outbreaks. And then if you look at the number of cases... It's overwhelmingly perfringens, right? Yeah. Like almost, almost, um, well, almost 65% perfringens outbreaks. And the weird thing is, Clostridium perfringens has not gone away. Right? Yeah. It didn't go away after Frank's, uh, Frank Bryan's uh, uh, key research in 1991. In fact, again, t talking about this, this connections and thinking about you know, my, my own career in food safety, we got a big grant from USDA um, in around 2000 to study Clostridium perfringens. And as I said before in the introduction, the work that we do in my lab is related to predictive modeling. And in, in, at that time, in the year 2000, there weren't any really good predictive models for Clostridium perfringens. Now, one of the big places where we have perfringens risk is in cooling of cooked meat products, right? So you take a meat product, you cook it. Um, it doesn't kill the Clostridium perfringens spores. The cooking process uh, causes those spores to germinate. And then if that product is cooled too slowly, you can get significant growth of Clostridium perfringens, and it causes illnesses. One of the, the, the things that I do on a regular basis, uh, although less so maybe these days because of the, the modeling tools have gotten better so that you know, normal people who are not modeling experts can use the tools, um, but it was, is clear cooling deviation. So a company calls me. It's typically in the summer months. It's 
typically on a Friday, um, and they've had a cooling deviation, or sometimes it's on a Saturday or Sunday, they've had a cooling deviation, and the product does not meet the USDA FSIS uh, standards for cooling, and they want to know if it's okay to recook the product or if it's actually, if it's a, the product is okay. So, um, and, and so we use the computer models that we developed, and actually some people came after us and made some better models that are much more easier to use. And I, I just tell people I don't even use the, the, the model that we developed. I use this, this uh, COM-based model, and it's, it's really good, and it works really well. Um, but we still have Clostridium perfringens problems today. We still have outbreaks mm -hmm. uh, that happen today. It's just that it's, we know how to prevent it, and so it's not a surprise when it happens. And again, that's, it's not so much necessarily about the modeling or the risk assessment. It's really more about the stuff that Ben studies, which is how do you get people to do the right thing. But before I completely close the door on Clostridium perfringens, those models and that way of thinking is actually become of relevance again because of, and one of the things that I, that I do when I'm not doing podcasts with Ben is I chair uh, a committee uh, for the Conference for Food Protection on um, mail order foods and third party delivery services. And, and so if you're talking about third party delivery, these are, these are companies that will pick up your food for you at the grocery store or at the restaurant and will bring, them, bring that food to your house. And it turns out, and this is really fascinating for me from a risk perspective, turns out it makes a big difference whether you start with cold food that's cold and then you bring it to somebody's house where it warms up versus if you pu pull food off a hot bar and you try to bring that hot food to somebody's house. And if you use, let's say, Listeria models for the cold food and use Clostridium perfringens models for the hot food, turns out that you have a much higher risk of Clostridium perfringens growth in that hot food um, uh, if, you're, if you're trying to keep it hot or, or if you just let it cool to ambient temperature. Um, and so um, anyway, it, the, the, so, so again, what, what's my point with all this? Well, stuff that we were finding out 50 years ago was relevant to research that was funded in my lab 20 years ago, which is relevant to research that I'm doing today. And so, the, and, 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 and to look at that through line and be able to make those connections to me has, has just been fascinating. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go one more thing from the Foodborne Outbreak uh, Annual Summary Report. And the, the, so there's a table. Um, in here that goes through uh, outbreaks of foodborne illness reported by state, local, and territorial health departments. And so it was, it's basically a tally sheet. What states reported the most outbreaks? So, you know, being that we're in Idaho, I looked there first. Um, in 1968, there were two outbreaks reported in Idaho, so that sounds pretty good. Um, and obviously, I'll, I'll say that cynically because I'm sure they just didn't report them or investigate them. And there were four in 1969. So, I mean, just a huge increase over 19... Yeah, uh, double. Uh, double, doubled. 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 The, yeah. Uh, but what was more interesting was, like, who are the leaders here? What, and, and I look at this from, er, you know, early infrastructure investment in public health, right? Like, I look at this as if you're investigating and reporting a lot of outbreaks, you probably have a pretty good health department. And what's fascinating in this is New York City is called out specifically in this table, separate to New York State. So the state of New York also only had two outbreaks reported in 1968 and three in 1969, but New York City had 56 outbreaks reported in 1968 and 22 outbreaks in 1969. And, and so why, why is that, right? Like, thinking about it, to me, it's, well, you've, you've got 
so many more sanitarians that are there. New York City is, uh, you know, still is a, you know, a marquee world city that is just investing tons of dollars into public health. And so here you are trying to actually find these things. And then compared to, and hopefully this won't offend anybody from Nebraska or Nevada or New Hampshire, who did not report any outbreaks in any of those three states didn't report anything in either of the, those two years. And, and or it, so, you know, going back 50 years. Now, we know if we look at reporting this, you know, it, it changes um, over time and there are certain states that don't, don't report as much as other states and they do, they are investigating. And again, this is looking at it from the, from the federal standpoint. But, but yeah, I thought it was, I don't know, I thought that was interesting as well. It's like, oh well, man, New York City is on its own. And, it, and it's funny because you and I, we're, we're kind of in sync because, because I, I mean, I shared this with Ben and, and, and he and I have picked out exactly the same things that we want to talk about. So I want to call out in 1968 and 1969, um, 18 and 16 outbreaks in New Jersey. Which is, which is really kind of interesting, because we, New Jersey, I mean, I love, well, I don't, love is a strong word. Um, I, is I've, New Jersey I've lived, for lovers? I've lived, I've lived in New Jersey longer than I've lived anywhere else, although I don't <laughs> consider myself from New Jersey. I have, a, I have to say, I have a healthy respect for New Jersey, you know? I don't turn my back on it, yeah. you know? Um, but I've got, a, I've got a healthy respect, you know? It's, 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 earned, it's earned a place uh, on on my shelf. In your pantheon? <laughs> yeah. Like when New Jersey calls, you're there to answer. I'm there. I'm yeah, there. Yeah. I'm there. Um, well, and, and don't let me forget, I want to come back to something important that happened in New Jersey in, in 1968 or 1969. But the other thing that I always love to, and I will do this every time there's an outbreak, right? I will look at which states are reporting cases from that outbreak. And one of the states I always look at is, Ben? Minnesota. Minnesota. Now, Minnesota, who is a leader today, right? They have a group of people, epidemiologists, called Team Diarrhea. If you've not heard about Team Diarrhea, Google it. Um, it they're a great, great bunch of folks. Um, uh, back, uh, back in 68, uh, 69, uh, Minnesota had five and then three. So Minnesota was not a leader back then. But another really um, uh, cutting-edge state, Washington, Washington. State, actually... <laughs> 33 outbreaks in 68, 62 in 69. So folks in Washington, like they were dominating uh, food safety epidemiology back then, right? And, you know, and the other point that I want to make too, and I think this data would probably support it, uh, Art Liang, who works uh, at the CDC, showed me some data at some, showed some data at a, at a talk, and it was a correlation between the number of reported outbreaks in a state and the number of state epidemiologists. And it was virtually a straight line. Okay, so what this means to you, if you want to, and it was a, a positive correlation. So what this what this should mean to you is, if you want to eliminate foodborne disease in your state, fire all your epidemiologists, right? Because the number the number of outbreaks will drop to zero. Yeah. If you want to, if you want worse food safety, hire more epidemiologists. They're going to find right? something. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So so but but it was it, anyway. So before I completely completely leave this table. One of the outbreaks, one of the, I believe it's one of the 18 outbreaks in 1968. So I'm breaking the rules a little bit, but I'm, I'm yeah, going yeah, okay. to tie it for Don't you. Don't let Josh so, know. 51 years of food safety. Yeah. Um, episode title. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, One of the things that happened in 1968 is there was a food poisoning outbreak at Rutgers University. And there, if I can find it, I will link to it. There's a New York Times article about it. Hundreds of students huh. made sick. Now... Of course, I was not responsible for that. I was eight years old, if you're keeping up. Um, but 
a colleague of mine um, who who's also published some stuff in 1969 that we may talk about later, Dr. Myron Solberg, was a faculty member at Rutgers University. He sat down with the director of dining services, um, and they together crafted a program that would make sure that they never had an outbreak like that again. Mike ran that program until he retired in the year 2000. I was, work, I was hired at Rutgers in 1989, uh, started working uh, with Mike long after, uh, long, shortly thereafter uh, on this program. After Mike retired, I took over the program, and it exists in a slightly different format today, um, but, but I still run that program today. And that program basically funds a couple of graduate students in my lab that go out to the Rutgers University dining halls every week. Uh, they collect food samples, they bring them back to the laboratory. Uh, the students that leave my lab are well-versed in the FDA BAM manual for testing food products. Uh, undergrads come into our lab. They learn about making media and running autoclaves. It's a tremendously valuable program. Dining Services is just as proud of it uh, as Rutgers Dining is just as proud of it as I am. Um, and it also, again, provides graduate funding for these graduate students who go on to do other research in their spare time when they're not visiting university dining halls. So, so something that a foodborne outbreak that happened 50 years ago today, again, has had a profound effect on the way that I run my lab and the things that I do today, which, I, you know, again, to me, is just fascinating. Yeah. Um, what, one last thing I want to highlight in this, in this uh, report, as you were talking, I, was, I scrolled down and I missed this in my first review, um, but it, there, there's a table in here, table nine, for those following along at home. It's a place where food was mishandled in foodborne outbreaks reported by specific etiology. And so the, the categories are food processing establishments, food service establishments, homes, and unknown. Two things pop out to me on this table. One is out of, um, if I'm trying to eyeball this, uh, there were, in 1969, 371 reported outbreaks. 140, 114 of those were linked to food service. So that, you know, the area that I am focused on a lot of my work. Uh, and then 178 was unknown. Didn't, didn't know what the, where the food handling mishap was. But, so, and that sort of, that ratio is the same for 69 and, and 68, pretty, pretty close. Homes um, are very, sort of a very small percentage, uh, 15 to 18% of uh, the outbreaks were linked to homes. And it's one of the things that, that as I've been in food safety for not quite, foods, not quite 50 years, um, but I often hear from individuals, it's, it's just a, like a common conversation is about like, you know, food safety is about consumers not handling food safely in the home. And even in 1969, the data didn't really support that. There, you know, there, there, are, there are definitely factors in all, you know, production and processing and all the way along. But it's, you know, food safety is not just a, if consumers use thermometers, we would eliminate our foodborne illness concerns. Um, but the other thing about this table, and we just sort of talked about E. coli not being in, in, this, out, in this outbreak response, or, um, summary. Well, here, lo and behold, it didn't make it to the top uh, list of the pie chart, but in 1969, um, there were uh, E. coli uh, outbreaks linked to food processing establishments and food service establishments, two of each. And it doesn't, you know, well, obviously we're not talking about E. coli 157H7 in, in those specified terms, but, you know, the, the E. coli contamination and illness was definitely on the radar um, back, back then. Cause, and, and that's, I guess, a little bit surprising to me 
um, because e everything kind of starts in the E. coli conversation in, in 1982 with a, an outbreak linked to restaurant A, as it's referred to in the uh, uh, CDC reports, which we can now t talk about it as McDonald's. Um, but uh, but you know that that sort of it gets pointed to as like this is the first time we saw an outbreak, and it's like well you know if we look at these these reports, no. What, so what was this E. coli that was happening in 1969, and where was it? And that you know it just opens up more questions. Yeah, and one of the, again, uh, and so so we looked at uh, so we looked at Journal of Food Science, we looked at um, uh, Journal of Food Protection, but but also uh, one of the things that I do again when I'm not doing a podcast with Ben is I'm editor uh, for a journal called Applied and Environmental Microbiology. Uh, back in 1969, it was called Applied Microbiology. Uh, but I also look through the food section of that journal um, to see stuff that might be relevant today. And here's a paper. Uh, Ben's talking about E. coli, it's yep. reminding me of this. A paper entitled Evaluation of a Washing Procedure for the Examination of Almonds for E. coli. Right? And so again, you think about, I mean, today, if you think about almonds and food safety, you think about salmonella. Hopefully you think about the cutting edge work done by our friend and colleague, uh, Linda Harris at UC Davis, who, who occasionally listens to this podcast, although probably won't listen to this one. Because it's a long, she, walk, she listens to it while she's walking, and sometimes she says, your podcast is too long for my walk. <laughs> Sometimes it's a three-walk podcast. Sometimes it's she just needs podcast. to walk more. I yeah. Mean, um, but I figured, yeah. again, uh, salmonella and almonds kind of blew everybody away when it, when it first happened. But guess what? Here's a paper from 1969 um, from somebody who worked at the Food and Drug Administration out of the San Francisco office um, looking at uh, a washing procedure for the examination of almonds for E. coli. So, so clearly, people were thinking about, and maybe, and again, not pathogenic E. coli, but in, you know, an enteric organism, an indicator for the possibility of contamination. Um, people were thinking about that um, in, uh, in 1989. And, and to add, there's another paper also from that year um, entitled Incidents of Escherichia coli in Black Walnut Meats. So not only in almonds, looking for E. coli in, um, in walnut. And uh, Don has very nicely highlighted uh, a passage in here that says, from a sanitary point of view, there has been a perennial concern with the problem of E. coli contamination in shelled nut meats with a variety of, uh, of citations. So, so again, you know, similar things that we've been talking about for 50 years. Um, you know, 50 years ago, we were talking about it, and we're still, we still continue there today. Where should we go next? Oh, I don't know. I'm, you know, one of the great things that we don't get to do, well, we do, we do listener feedback on the podcast. People write us um, and with all sorts of really interesting questions. Uh, but one of the things that uh, we, we would like to do today at some point, um, uh, maybe just in a few minutes, is we would like to take uh, questions from folks in the audience. So hopefully we've, we've stimulated uh, your thought process. Hopefully you've got some questions for us. Um, because we only have two microphones, what we'll do is we'll ask you just to shout out your question so folks in the room can hear it, and then we'll repeat it um, for folks who are listening uh, on the podcast later. So, so be thinking about your questions, um, and um, we'll, we'll get to that uh, in just a minute. I have a question for you. Oh, go for it. So, so this, is, this is cold. He doesn't know this is coming. Okay. Um, so you know, the title here is 50 Years of, of Food Safety. 51. 51. 51. 50, 51, 52, whatever, whatever, it, takes. whatever it takes. Yeah, uh, but I think that's, you know, a, that's a reference. Yeah, we uh, we came at this as well. Let's look at the last fifty years. All right, I'm going to ask you a question about what does it look like fifty <sighs> years from now, Dawn? What do you? What are, what are we talking about? Are we talking about walnut and E. coli 
in 50 years? I mean, you and I probably aren't talking about much. Oh. We might still be doing <laughs> yeah. we, we might still be doing the podcast. Uh, yeah, in, I in hope 50 to years. be. I yeah. really hope to be. Yeah. Just a head in a jar, but I hope to yeah. be. <laughs> It'll be. You'll be the, the world's most trusted and oldest food safety expert. <laughs> indeed, indeed. So I don't know. What do you, yeah, what, what, are your, what are your thoughts? I wish you hadn't sprung this on me. Oh, um, come on. No, Someone no, else is this, is this, yeah, is, this, this is hard. This is hard. 50 happens. years of food safety in the future. So one of the things, and, you know, predictions uh, about the future are, are difficult and often wrong. Um, but I, I think one of the things that has blown, well, you know what? I think in 50 years, let me, let me go out on a limb and let's say in 50 years, we're not going to have food safety problems. Why? Because we're going to all have little tricorders on our belt that we're going to wave <laughs> over food and it's going to tell us whether there's pathogens well, there or not. So, I mean, I really, I really think that, I mean, again, we're probably maybe not 50 years away from that, but, but I think that's a possibility. Yep. I mean, certainly what we're seeing in terms of whole genome sequencing it's already revolutionized food safety. So I don't, I don't know what the, the next generation is there. Well, maybe it's microbiome stuff, right? Like, I'm, I am uh, t totally ill-equipped to study this from, from a scientific perspective, but I am absolutely fascinated by the work that's being done on microbiomes, right? Where you can just basically, you know, uh, Ben's uh, microbiome is different than my microbiome, right? That may impact our, our health. It may impact our nutrition. It may impact our susceptibility to food safety. Um, the, the microbiome of Ben's kitchen is different than the microbiome mm -hmm. of my kitchen. You know, no, no, no quality judgment there. They're just, they're just different, they're just different. right? Um, you know, we, he has one dog. We have two dogs. He has two kids. We right now have zero kids. Um, you know, a friend of ours that lives in San Francisco um, uh, has a cat and a kid and a bearded dragon. I suspect that, that his microbiome of his home is going to look different. I'm, I'm very yep. interested in that. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, so I, I think, and, and obviously doing microbiome research right now is fairly expensive. Um, there's a lot of papers that I see that are just sort of snapshots, right? Where you're just like, oh, we did the microbiome of XYZ on this day. And it's like, well, that's great. But I mean, it's interesting, but it's not gonna really tell us anything about how to manipulate that microbiome. But, but I, really, I really think uh, that, that that's one area that I would not bet against, let's say. How about you? What okay, you so, I, got, so I, yeah, I thought about two, two things. One, similar to when we look back at 1969 and there's a bunch of pathogens that aren't on that list, we're, we're going we're gonna to discover five, six, ten more foodborne pathogens oh, that will have names. Easily, yes. Yeah, that we don't, haven't, you know, they're making people sick now that we just haven't, haven't discovered. And then we're going to have to, and we're going to have to think about, do they act the same? Do they act differently? Do we control them in different ways? Just like we, we've seen listeria and, you know, and Campylobacter move, move into what we do um, today. I think the, for me, the big, and maybe this isn't 50 years in the future, but it's more like five or 10 or 20. Um, I think the big difference of how we're handling food, it will, you know, and, and, um, Gary talked a little bit about this uh, before. Um, I think we'll be making more food at home that is not like food that I would make from a recipe. I think kind of like SodaStream, where oh, instead of just buying seltzer water at, you know, in a can, I'm going to make it at home, and I think oh, there's going to be more of like 3D printed food. Yeah, 3D printed food, but but also like I like to go eat at the Cheesecake Factory, and I have my little Cheesecake Factory factory in my kitchen that <laughs> that ends up like just making the cheesecake. You know, I, I get little pouches, and then it's and then it's done. And I, I think that I think the food industry is already looking forward to that kind of stuff, right? And that comes with a whole bunch of other food safety type challenges because now we're putting a lot of focus in a consumer's hand, but they, you know, they want, you know, I, 
as from a, a beverage standpoint, maybe having the ability to make that beverage in you know this exact you know Coke or Pepsi or whatever um, without having to go buy it, but I have all the components. Yeah. Well, and one of my favorite things about traveling these days, which I guess shows you how easily amused I am, is I love it when I come into the United uh, Lounge um, and there's that machine that lets me make my own Coke, yeah. uh, like so I can get a Diet Coke, which is with orange and vanilla, which tastes like a creamsicle, um, um, and I can't get that anywhere else. But, right, right. You know, but but thinking about this and, and thinking about like what's going on with um, uh, third-party delivery services and innovative ways of getting yep. food to people, maybe someday I'm going to have I'm going to order a really fancy dinner. Uh, from my neighbor who is raising his own chickens, who's gonna he's gonna cook that, or maybe it's not, not maybe it's a guy in the next town over. I'm gonna order that meal, and then some other person is gonna get in the car and bring that meal to me, right? Yeah. I mean, talk about a food safety nightmare, right? Yep, yep. But but wouldn't wouldn't that be cool? Um, and we sort of are seeing this already um, to a certain extent. Well, and we're certainly seeing a revolution in uh, cottage foods, um, farmers markets. Like so, again, right now. We've talked a little bit about farmers markets on this show. Uh, New Jersey uh, is rewriting, re uh, rewriting its food code, and uh, we're the only state in the nation right now that does not have a cottage food law. Uh, the cracks are beginning there, and so my, my uh, food safety colleagues in the state uh, used to say, I'm hoping to be retired. Um, by the time that happens, or it's never going to, it's never going to, first it was, it's never going to happen. And then second of all, I hope to be retired. And then third is like, well, uh, I'm going to be on my way out the door when it starts to happen. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so cottage foods, uh, I think are big. Farmers markets are big. I, I only see those trends as getting more out there. And yet how do, and again, this, we're talking about this in, on our New Jersey food code uh, committee. We have a subcommittee dealing with farmers markets and how do you deal, what is a farmers market, right? And is it, is it a, is it a facility that has floors and ceilings where, where farmers come or where people come? Is it a tent out in a field? And apparently all of those things are true, but, but from a food safety point of view, it's really complicated. On the other hand, there's huge consumer demand for these things. Right, right, so right. I don't, I don't see that going away. But the problems are, and again, it depends on it's a our farmer's market that's, that's selling fresh, whole, uncut produce versus uh, now selling fresh cheeses versus selling processed meats, you know, and then it just sort of goes, goes on and on from there. So, yeah. so I think we're only going to see more of that. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that's, yeah, I'm, I'm, on, I'm on the same track. Well, why don't we, why don't we open it up for, for questions and if you've written down questions, that's fine. If you just want to yell them out, we'll just repeat them. Um, but we're, you know, we're here. You can ask us anything. This is like uh, one of those Reddit threads of like, ask me anything. Yeah. Is it, is it hockey related? No. Okay, then, then we'll have to park this one for later. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so you, you've had quite a discussion on perfringents and associated with meat. So what are the main sources then for these outbreaks? Which types of meats? Yeah, so the question is about Clostridium perfringens and sources and types of meats. Um, you know, I, I think that the incidence of perfringens in uh, uh, fresh meat has probably gone down over time, um, but the reason why you have to uh, deal with a cooling deviation is that what the regulations say is that you you have to assume that it's there. Um, but basically, um, it could be in anything, right? It could be in beef, it could be in pork, 
Uh, it could be in chicken. It, the, the cooling deviations tend to come from foods that um, are a large mass, and so they'll cool slowly. And so we have, uh, we actually had a recent outbreak, well, a couple of years back now, a recent outbreak linked to a Thanksgiving dinner that was done by a church group, um, and it was turkey products. And again, it, typically it's either, a, it, I would say food processors do a pretty good job of dealing with this. Where we tend to have problems is when consumers are preparing foods in quantity that, that don't really know what they're doing or don't have adequate cooling capacity. So I cook the turkey. Maybe I cook two turkeys. I put the first turkey in my fridge. I finish cooking the second turkey, and lo and behold, I don't have room in my fridge because there's already a turkey in there. And so I'm just going to leave that on the counter or I'm going to set it on the porch because it's kind of cooler out there or something. And it turns out we, we have an outbreak because of that. So, so I would say it's definitely poultry. Uh, it's definitely, uh, you know, we've had, had, had outbreaks with beef products. Um, those, those tend to be the top two that come to, to my mind. Yeah, well, and just looking at the 2016 CDC um, outbreak reports for perfringens, um, the majority of the illnesses to just to support what Don's saying um, are linked to food preparation steps that go wrong in large, like institutional catering banquet facilities, um, as well as restaurants, and then a few in a home, but nothing from other commercial locations. And so, so the source, is, as Don said, can really be. Any you know any of these 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 meats and it's it's the handling aspect in those retail preparation steps that that are you know continue to be continue to be the issue. Well, and again, just to 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 get you thinking a little bit now, typically these are large mass products that are that are cooled uh, slowly. But imagine a rotisserie chicken in a grocery store that's cooked. And maybe the the, the uh, hot holding for the the grocery store is marginal, and so you, the temperature starts to come down a little bit. Um, and then um, you have a delivery service that is um, you know not doing a good job, uh, and and maybe they're trying really hard to keep the temperature of the chicken warm, um, but instead of keeping it above uh, 130 or above 140 or whatever the state food code says, uh, they put it at a different temperature, which a food safety microbiologist would call an incubation temperature. Right, rather than a proper storage temperature, I thought that we'd get a bigger laugh. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> it didn't work. It's, it's early. It's, it's, it's well, early. but you know, I mean, but we had some other laugh lines that were really well, good. Those I, are the ones I said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're just the straight man up here. You just. Yeah. I'm pretty good at being. You the straight are. Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, uh, so, so imagine a scenario now where a rotisserie chicken is not a, a large mass product, but because of a series of unfortunate uh, events, which I think is the name of a book. Um, <laughs> it, see, now that got a bigger laugh. I don't yeah, get yeah, it. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> that that rotisserie chicken product ends up causing illness. But again, perfringens is interesting because so. And this, this again, gets to the, another interface that I, that I love, which we, I didn't really find any articles about this. But, um, I, and again, Ben and I both love this, this science and policy interface. We're both going to be at the Conference for Food Protection, both on, on Council, Council 3, 3. Uh, which is going to be for the first time. Yes. So we'll have to actually both pay attention and not text each other too much. Um, but um, the, uh, uh, dealing with the interface of science and policy. So, so USDA, Food Safety Inspection Service, has a performance standard for the cooling of cooked meat products. That performance standard says that you will cool uh, meats according to this time temperature profile, which actually matches the FDA model food code cooling more or less. Um, but 
Um, uh, if you don't match that, and you can show through product formulation or other things, you have less than a one log increase in the co concentration of perfringens, um, then you're okay. Well, that's a very conservative performance standard. I suspect in many of these outbreaks, it was not a one log increase in the concentration of perfringens. It was probably closer to a two or a three log increase. So, um, and, and you know, and that might, that would be an interesting thing to see, talking about 50 years forward in food safety. Will we see uh, a relaxation or maybe a harmonization of food safety standards? That would be, actually, it was a really interesting question that came up at the, the um, Preventive Controls Alliance meeting that you were not at Correct. last week. Let's just call you out for that. Yeah. You're supposed to be there, but you're doing Coaching hockey. hockey. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Hockey gets hockey, a laugh. Hockey. I don't understand. Um, so, um, but the question that we posed to Jenny Scott, um, uh, friend, not friend of the podcast, I don't think she listens, but friend of the, friend of you and I, yeah. um, uh, was, will we see perf uh, performance standards get adopted? Performance controls different than HACCP, right? Preventive controls versus HACCP controls um, implemented at the Codex level. And she said, well, no, probably not by that name. But if you look at what what is already in Codex, it already basically matches what, what that says. So, so that would be a really interesting to think about, thing to think about is like, what's the next 50 years of food safety regulations? Because uh, I think that's in a way almost more interesting than the science. So yeah. anyway. Um, just to circle off on that, on that question. So USDA did an, um, a risk assessment for perfringens uh, and ready eaten partially cooked meat um, in uh, 2005. And so the data that they built that a risk assessment on was uh, a survey that was conducted in 2004 in, in the US and where um, the top food that they found in, uh, in their sampling to have perfringens at the highest rate was ground pork. 61% of the um, ground pork that was sampled um, out of 99 uh, samples uh, had, uh, had perfringens. Yeah, the, uh, the yeah. good news is, I guess, from a ground pork perspective, um, that, por that ground pork um, is, uh, is not going to have cooling problems. Right. But, but the fresh pork that was used to source it might. Right, yep. So. All right, so we, we've got about 15 minutes left, and we would love to take your questions. Yeah. Uh, yes, right here. Okay, so what are some of your, we'll say, your favorite misconceptions held by people about food safety, past oh. and present? Oh, I, uh, so, so the question is favorite misconceptions about food safety. Um, my favorite misconception um, is... Um, uh, please, um, if your initials are MT and you live in the city of Chicago, stop listening. Um, uh, hand washing prevents all foodborne disease. It absolutely, and I'm, I've, I mean, I'm, I'm a card carrying microbiologist. I've published on the study of hand washing. Hand washing gives you about a two log reduction, okay? So a 99% reduction, which sounds like a lot, okay? But if you have norovirus and you got norovirus and poop on your hands and you got 10 to the eighth, after a one log reduction, or after a two log reduction, guess how many you'll have? 10 to the sixth, okay? So, so a 99% reduction does not help you very much when you have um, millions or, or billions of organisms on your hands. So that, that's my favorite myth that I love to bust. Yeah, um, I, think, I think my favorite myth uh, is one that, that I've talked about a bunch, and it's, it's about thermometer use and, and color and juices run clear um, and messages that, we, that we've given consumers for a really long time about like these things all correlate to, oh, I can look at that steak or I can look at that hamburger or I can look at something and be like, yeah, that, that, has, that is done, right? Um, and, and done being it's not 
yeah, it, it doesn't have any food safety issues. Um, and and the what's in that misconception though, and this is the like, okay, I can look at these things, I can touch them, I can cut it open, all that kind of stuff. That doesn't work. But so something that I've become more aware of as I watch what people do in a kind of creepy way around like preparing food and using thermometers <laughs> is that how we as food safety people or food scientists think that people use thermometers is not really the case and it's not super simple to actually use a thermometer. Like, and so, so the misconception being I can look at it, the answer is use a thermometer, but we don't do a really good job telling people exactly how to use a thermometer and that there are gonna be differences, um, maybe 10 or 15 degrees in a, in a hamburger patty. And so I can't just use a food thermometer once, I need to go for different spots, I need to look at angle, I need to have the right thermometer. So it, it's a complicated uh, one, but, but, and I think that's part of the reason why the myth is out there uh, as well, it's like, well, that's really hard and it's not, it's more complex than, than I want to get involved with and I don't have a thermometer or I do, but I use it on Thanksgiving and that's it. Um, and, and, and I don't need to do it for all the other foods um, that, that I eat. So yeah, good, good question. Okay, let's take another question. We went over, uh, yeah. yeah, over there. Oh, that's good. And, 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 and uh, unfortunately, I don't remember the names of any of the undergrads. So. My question is, and I'm actually visiting from the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, the next big thing that's coming out there is this, you know, lab-grown Yep. Um, so I just wanted to get, you know, your perspective on it from a food safety perspective. Could it be beneficial and less food outbreaks, or what are some things that people don't uh, take into account when developing this product? Right. So, so for the folks listening at home, the question is about the safety risks or, or relative safety of lab-grown meat versus um, uh, non-lab-grown meat. Yeah. Uh, so. I, I, on this one, I think we don't we don't really have a lot of data to go on yet, and and I think there are lots of people in the um, production of lab grown meat, and, and I'll and I'll and I'll group something else like it's not it's it's not the same technology, but looking at the plant based proteins that um, that were talked about and sort of trend um, earlier, uh, contamination uh, risks in in the facilities are. That, that where, where those things are being grown or being made, it's not unlike what we would see in other food processing plants. So, so I would expect that, you know, listeria is gonna be an issue, um, that there will be, uh, at, you know, at some point, um, salmonella um, issues that, that we see with these, probably not based on the lab-grown meat side of things, but any of the other um, stabilizers and other ingredients that are going into it, any of the spices being, you know, uh, contributing uh, to it. Cause we still have that, you know, that, is, that issue, like whatever, whatever I'm using um, in the end of uh, whatever I'm, I'm you know, creating. Um, but, but I don't know if we have really great data on how the, that plant-based meat or the lab-grown meat um, transfers heat, what it means in the cooking process. There's some stuff that's, that's starting out there, but we don't have the history that we do in, in, other, um, in other areas. So I think, the, I think the risks are there. The consumption, um, uh, so the exposure, consumption-wise, we're, you know, we're not eating a lot of it. Um, and, and probably won't like, I mean, the, our, 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 um, 
more traditional protein sources will probably continue to be um, for for lots of like practical reasons. Um, so yeah, that's that's my thought. Yeah, and uh, so I've got a, a reaction as well, and and I think a good analogy might be um, greenhouse grown plants, right? And so I think generally speaking, if you grow a plant in a greenhouse, it's going to be safer than if you grow it in a field. It's also going to be more expensive. I think the same thing holds mm -hmm. true with lab grown meats. The other thing I will say though is that yes, on uh, everything else equal, it's going to be the same, except if you screw up, right? If you screw up in a greenhouse and you have a, you use contaminated water or you don't properly sanitize that system and you get a biofilm development and you get a pathogen that colonizes that system, well, the natural world is much better at taking care of that than, than the artificial world. And so I would say probably, this is just completely based on nothing but speculation, right? The laboratory grown meat is going to be safer until that plant that's growing that meat or that facility that's growing that meat gets colonized with some sort of biofilm um, and then you've got a big problem. Um, again, while we're talking about colonization of stuff, um, one other, other thing that I just have to talk about because it's some research that we published and it just super grosses me out um, is bulk soap, right? So uh, refillable soap dispensers. If you, um, if, now again, many of these dispensers are kind of like a bag and box, which again, they're, they're not so good for plastic packaging and, and waste. Um, the other option is you have this open top refillable soap dispenser. Well, we did some research on this, and other research as well, but we did some research recently uh, in collaboration with Chuck Gerba at University of Arizona, as well as some folks from, from uh, Gojo. Um, and uh, this stuff, if, if one of those soap dispensers gets colonized, Basically, you are pumping, the, the, the organisms grow, they develop a biofilm. So when you test bulk soap, and we tested um, 300 soap samples, I think, uh, across three states. Yeah, so 100 in each state. Um, either the soap is clean, which you would expect, the soap is contaminated, and then, or the soap is like massively contaminated. Because once you, and again, a lot of people will use this bulk soap, they'll dilute it to save money, right? Because that's a big cost, I guess, if you're running a convenience store, is the cost of your soap, I don't know. You'll dilute it, which dilutes out the preservative systems and lets the bacteria grow, uh, and then it just gets massively contaminated. So I think that that sort of analogy maybe plays into the, the lab-grown meat as well as the yeah. greenhouse. Great, great question. Other, yeah, other question. There was one up here, and then we'll go. Yeah. Um, there was an interesting question uh, brought up yesterday regarding is our food becoming too sanitary, too sterile, that we're not, well, maybe possibly becoming hypersensitive or we're not getting that exposure to bacteria? And what are the long term risks to that? Yeah, so, so the question's uh, really about um, it, uh, as we focus on food safety, are we over-focusing on food safety and changing exposure? How does that affect um, immune system and maybe allergies and, and other, other things? And, um, and so it's a, an area that, that's been um, put out there a little bit. Uh, the hygiene hypothesis is, is sort of the central piece of this. And, and I'll, I'll highlight as I answer this that the hygiene hypothesis, it is just that. It's a hypothesis, right? Like it's, it's, not, a, uh, it's, a, it's not a theory. It's like, okay, let's, let's think about it. The the argue, or the argument to me on either side of this is it doesn't matter, <laughs> um, and and, I'll, and, and I'll, I'll not to like you know deride your question at all. But the argument doesn't matter because we 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 can't really go back. We can't really change what we've done um, when it comes to focusing on on food safety. And the reason why we can't is because we made. Um, cost-benefit decisions. And, and one of the cost-benefit decisions that, that we've made, um, as really going back, I mean, 100 years, when we look at, at food safety, is that 
it's more important to protect people from food than it is for the exposure side of things. And so if we said, okay, we're gonna make food a little less safe, some of you will get sick, some of you will, get, will die more than we have today. Are we okay with that? And the trade-off being, it may reduce the, um, it may impact our microbiome, it may change um, uh, allergens. And, and I, don't, I don't think that that's a realistic, like I don't think we're gonna have that conversation. I don't think anybody's gonna stand up and say, yeah, it's, it's cool if we have, let's, you know, so, so right now, what, what do we have, 3,000 deaths a year? Well, let's put it up 5%. Um, or whatever. Oh no, let's yeah. double it. Let's double it. Come okay, on. let's double we, it. We want to okay. have a real. Secret. So we got six. So now we got three thousand people. I think in the conversation, it's like I'm okay if three thousand other people die from food safety or foodborne illness risks, as long as it's not any of the people that I know. Um, well, maybe some of the people I know. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, unless we get to pick them. Yeah, no, but but I like I I I appreciate the the conversation. I just don't think yeah. it's realistic that like we're not going to make food less safe. We're only going to try and, and, and make it more safe. Um, are, there, um, are, are there potential, um, it, does that change what we're doing? Like, do, are, there, are there outcomes that, that uh, as we made that decision? Yeah, there, there probably are. Um, but but I, I don't think we're, we're going to get into a, a place where it's like, nah, we're going let, to, you know, let, let's expose people to, to things. Yeah, and, and you're, but it's a good question, and it's one good. that comes up a lot. And my, my short answer, which is basically the, the same as the answer that Ben just gave, is that, yeah, it's, it's totally fine. We could, we could absolutely um, build up our immunity and our tolerance, um, and it, all it's going to take is the, for, for more infants to die from uh, diarrhea. So you know, if, yeah. you, if you're if you're okay with that, you know, put your hand up, and, and, we'll, and we'll all be better, yeah. right? So and no, and, um, yeah, uh, but but I mean, but and, and probably it's not just food, although food is part of it. It's also probably water, right? If you look at uh, countries with developing economies where they maybe have more uh, foodborne disease, again, it's tricky because of the epidemiology side. Um, we don't necessarily know that they have more, but we suspect that they have more. Um, yeah, they're they're more they're more tolerant because the ones that the ones that are healthier and have more robust immune systems didn't die. The ones that are less tolerant, they're dead, and they're not they're not there in the population. So, um, but it's but it's a good question, and I may and maybe again to tie it back to the microbiome stuff. Yeah. Um, maybe we'll be able to figure out okay, what are some ways that we can generate healthy microbiomes for people? Like one of the things that we know is that infants uh, that are born via C-section versus that are born vaginally have a different microflora, right? Well, what can we do if we understand that microbiome? What can we do to make those those infants that are born by C-section have that same perhaps more robust uh, gastrointestinal uh, gut flora? So, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's okay. We're, we're getting there. Yeah. So we might have time for one last question. Yeah. And this will be the last question. Yeah, this will be it, yeah. Well, just a little bit along those lines, uh, in our uh, food processing facilities, we're being very aggressive about cleaning, environmental testing. And so do you foresee some unintended consequences developing along those lines? Or are there better ways to head off some of those consequences over time? That yeah, so, so the question is about perhaps over-cleaning of processing facilities leading to problems. And, and I, th I think that for sure that you're on to something. Um, I remember seeing some data, and I apologize, I don't have the details, but basically looking at a food processing plant where uh, they were very, very aggressive about, they had a problem with listeria species, and they were very aggressive about getting rid of listeria species, um, which they did until they got a particularly resistant listeria monos 
Cytogenes strain that then colonized the facility, right? Um, there's another really interesting uh, story, which I can probably find a link to, which has to do with salmonella in chickens. And so salmonella, um, some salmonella make chickens sick and don't make people sick. Some salmonella make people sick and don't make chickens sick. Well, there is a hypothesis out there, it's only a hypothesis, is that one of the reasons why we have a, such a problem with Salmonella enteritidis in chickens, which makes us sick but doesn't make chickens sick, is we attempted to eradicate a particular Salmonella species in chickens that made chickens sick but not us. Once we pushed that out of the microbiome, Salmonella enteritidis came in there, and now it makes us sick. So again, maybe as we learn more about, I would love I would love for us to be able to say, well, you have a problem, you want, you're worried about listeria in your plant, well, guess what? We're going to give you a strain of non-pathogenic listeria inocua. You're just going to spray that stuff yep. all over your plant, right? Um, that, I mean, that couldn't happen today because we use listeria species as a way to, to check for listeria monocytogenes, right? But I would love for us to be able to have that, right? Now, maybe the next best solution is to take an organism that's not listeria inocua, but that competes for those same ecological niches as inocua and monocytogenes that maybe we can tolerate or that FDA, the regulatory agencies, USDA, will tolerate and then put that in the plant. So and there's a lot of interesting stuff going on with biocontrol. We're not there yet, but, but, but there's definitely something to what you're saying, right? We want, we want the facilities to be clean, um, but we don't want to do it in a way that, that maybe promotes colonization. Yeah, the only thing I'll add um, on that is uh, we'll, we'll link to a paper um, that was in uh, comprehensive reviews in food science and food safety about residential bacteria on surfaces in the food industry and their implications for food safety and quality because it really gets to your question of, first of all, what, what's there in the pre-sanitation situation, what's there after, what products are coming in and how that Im impacts all the non-pathogenic things that we're, that we're worried about. Um, or sorry, that we're not maybe worried about, um, and what does it what does it mean for establishing pathogens in in that facility? And I you know, I agree with Don. I don't think we're we're quite there yet, but it looks it's it it certainly looks very promising about using competitive um, microorganisms um, to you know to to, to um, combat the idea of we're you know knocking out all all of this other stuff that that might be doing something. So. I think that's a show. I think that's a show. Thank you. You guys have been a fantastic audience. Yeah. Thank you all. Thank you so much. Yeah.